Hello, I'm Abram Van Ingen. And I'm Joanne Diaz. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. And today we're looking at one of the less well-known poems of the great Harlem Renaissance poet Langston Hughes called Johannesburg Mines. Before we read it, Joanne, could you tell us a bit about who Langston Hughes was? Yeah, well, there's so much to say, but I'll try to be brief. He was born in 1902. He died in 1967. And his productivity completely coincides with the flourishing of the Harlem Renaissance and all that comes with that. Um, He is one of our most frequently anthologized American poets, and he's world famous today. He was very invested in capturing both the beauty and the ugliness, all facets of everyday life for ordinary black Americans. He didn't always embrace poetic, classical poetic forms, although he invented many of his own structures and was certainly deeply invested in the blues form and not only on the page, but in collaboration with jazz musicians. So in his own lifetime, sometimes his work was received in a sort of mixed way um, by black intellectuals who wanted to present a different picture of their ongoing struggles with racial injustice, but he was always beloved by the broader public, and certainly that is true today as well. That's great, yeah. And one of the things we're going to see in this poem is the way that it does reject many classical structures, attempting to find a new kind of voice, a new kind of form. And it reminds me, so one of the leading sort of elder statesmen of African-American literature by the 1920s was a guy named James Weldon Johnson. And by the 19, in 1922, sort of in a lead-in to the Harlem Renaissance and all that it would invent, he said that African-American poets in the United States need to find a form that will express the racial spirit by symbols from within rather than by symbols from without. And this idea of finding a form, finding a new way to say what needs to be said is part of what's at stake in the poem today. So, Joanne, would you read this short poem for us? Yes, I'd be glad to. Johannesburg Mines In the Johannesburg Mines, there are 240,000 natives working. What kind of poem would you make out of that? 240,000 natives working in the Johannesburg Mines. That's it. That's, That's the it. poem. That's that, it. it. It's amazing. <laughs> this, this poem... There are so many wonderful poems that appear in all kinds of anthologies written by Langston Hughes. And of all of them, this is one that really stays with me because it is a kind of provocation in the sense that uh, it says, what kind of poem would you make out of that? I'm going to share a piece of data with you. I'm not even going to tell you how I feel about it. I'm going to ask you, how would you possibly make a poem out of that? And then I'm going to restate the problem. And that's it. And for me, the reason I wanted to talk about this poem is because it's a poem that suggests failure. Not not that Langston Hughes is a failed poet, quite the opposite. It's that he is suggesting that a poem cannot be made out of this material that he's presenting. And just so we're all on the same page here, these minds are not a pretty picture, <laughs> right? These the, these minds are, are are the worst possible working conditions. These are terrible, terrible working conditions. And 240,000 Native Africans working in these minds 
it's so startling that he doesn't know what to do with it, and he can't do anything with it. And the poem is an expression of the inability to do anything with this subject matter. Yeah, it's it's very powerful. And, um, you know, Langston Hughes is writing this poem. This is actually one of his earlier poems. So it's one of the first that he ever published. So it was, and, and it has a very interesting literary history. And that's another reason why I'm so excited that we're talking about this poem is because, you know, sometimes when you uh, encounter a short poem in a literature anthology, it's sort of this little island unto itself on the page, isn't it? Right. It's mm-hmm. sort of it's sort of suspended from its original publication history. Uh, you may not necessarily be seeing what originally surrounded it. Mm-hmm. So it seems worth noting that this poem was actually published in three different magazines over a period of several years. So the first time it was published was in 1925 in a magazine called The Messenger. Why is that important? One reason is because The Messenger was one of the first and most important African-American literary magazines. Its uh, publishing work, well, the editors, A. Philip Randolph and Chandler Owen, were socialists. Their magazine had a decidedly progressive bent. It was a magazine that was filled with um, critique and essays and art objects that were all very attentive to labor rights, to work workers' rights. And so having a poem situated in that literary magazine would have been incredibly powerful. Yes. But but the publication history doesn't stop there. It's published a few years later in a magazine called The Crisis, which was founded by W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, and again, it's a very important literary magazine of African-American arts and letters. But then it's published again in 1957 in a literary magazine called Africa South. And this was a South African literary journal that was again, had a very progressive sort of leaning, but it was publishing work during apartheid in South Africa. So it interests me that Hughes is positioning the poem in several different ways and sometimes in several different shapes uh, to various audiences over time. I love what you say there because it, it, it allows us to talk about one important aspect of poetry that sometimes gets missed, which is that poems travel. And the context in which poems appear shapes the message and meaning of the poems as they appear. So sometimes uh, I I often recommend to students that if they like a poem in an anthology, they should go find the poet who wrote the poem and buy the book in which it first appeared. Because as you read through a book of poetry, it changes the shape of each individual poem. And poets write books of poetry and shape them with some kind of purpose and intention. There's a reason why one poem comes before the next and so on. The other thing that you point out, though, as as this appears here and there and all over the place, including in a South African journal, is that Hughes wrote poems early on in his career that showed a kind of sensitivity to the plight of black people all over the world. And Hughes himself kind of grew up all over the world. So, Joanne, when we were discussing this poem and, and and the ways that it is functioning, One of the terms you had for this poem was you said this is a good example of social poetics. Can you tell me a little bit about what you mean by that? Yes, I I want to signal my debt to the contemporary poet and critic Mark Nowak. Uh, He's one of my favorite poets. And just this year, he came out with a book called Social Poetics. And he 
He acknowledges that Langston Hughes is actually an enormous inspiration to him as he tries to understand what social poetics is. So Langston Hughes identified himself as a quote-unquote social poet um, in an article that he wrote in 1947, and he published in Phylon magazine, which was published by W.E.B. Du Bois. And so Hughes said that his poems are, quote, about people's problems, whole groups of people's problems rather than my own personal difficulties. And you were talking about Hughes's sort of global awareness of black people all over the world on every continent struggling. That's great because also where it situates this poem is definitely not in the personal poetry that we often think of as lyric or lyrical. And it's not exactly, though it, though it engages in politics, it's not exactly a political poetry, which we often think of as more oratorical. Uh, instead, it's, it's in a way, it's a kind of poetry of witness. It sort of states a fact. I am going to be the witness to this fact. And it's such a startling fact and such a horrific fact that in a certain sense, it stops language itself. We were talking a little before the pod- podcast about what a poetry of witness might mean or might be. Can you tell me a little bit about what that signifies to you? What is a poetry of witness? Yeah, this is a big, broad field of inquiry in poetry and poetics. And one of my favorite essays, I just feel like I'm talking about all the things I love. That's wonderful. Absolutely. What's a podcast for except to talk about the things we love? Yes, but it's so important right now because we are in a moment in which political poetry and the poetry witness is really flourishing in American poetry. Sandra Beasley, who is a wonderful contemporary poet, but also a very good critic, um, she She has a beautiful essay called Flint and Tinder, Understanding the Difference Between Poetry of Witness and Documentary Poetics. And in that essay, she talks about what you're describing. How is it? How can we describe poetry of witness? It's it's a poetics in which the poetic speaker is offering witness to some political complexity or atrocity. And she has a sentence in that essay that really sticks with me, that the poetry of witness cannot transcend the trauma that marks it. That really helps me understand Langston Hughes's poem. Poetry of witness cannot transcend the trauma that marks it. So here, here's this tiny little poem, just a few lines long. And Langston Hughes is reaching out to us as readers and saying, how can you possibly make a poem out of this, right? He can't transcend, he can't get past the fact and aestheticize it. He can't make something lyrical out of it, right? Right, but okay, but sometimes poets see trauma, face trauma, witness trauma, and they try to make sense of it. They do try to put a voice to it. They do try to give some language to it. And so, for example, you have the competing kind of account uh, with Anna Akhmadova in the preface, or non-preface, she calls it, to her great work, Requiem. Um, can you tell us what she says there as a kind of counter to what Hughes is doing here? Yes, and that's really important because they're sort of in tension with each other. So she calls this instead of a preface. And this her great Requiem, of course, which she wrote over many years, was a poetics of witness meant to sort of capture the atrocities of the Great Purge in the Soviet Union in the 1930s. And this is what she writes. During the terrifying years of the Yezhov repressions, I spent 17 months in Leningrad prison lines. One time, someone thought they recognized me. 
Then a woman standing behind me, who of course had never heard my name, stirred from her own, though common to all of us, stupor, and asked in my ear, there all spoke in a whisper, Could you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something akin to a smile slipped across what once had been her face. This is a very famous anecdote that is so important to understanding Anna Akhmadova as a poet of witness. But it goes to your point, which is she's not only witness to atrocity, I mean, she's subjected to it, her whole family was, and she's saying, yes, I can write about this. I, I can do something with this. And what I love about that is, so it's a very different approach to what Hughes is doing. But one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this particular Hughes poem is that I think it's a really good and accessible lead-in to what is often inaccessible, difficult poetry. Because to split the difference between what Anna Akhmadova and Langston Hughes are doing is to say there are those poets who face an incredibly difficult subject and say the only way to write about this subject is with incredibly difficult poetry. It's a reason, in other words, why we might want to read poetry that is difficult, that is inaccessible, that makes us disoriented, that we can't quite grasp the meaning of, because sometimes that's an intentional aspect of the poem trying to get at a subject matter that is too awful or too difficult. In other words, to make something neat and clean and tidy is not to do it justice when it is itself not neat and clean and tidy. You know, I, I often have students and others who will say to me, oh, poetry is just too hard, poetry is just too difficult, why do they make it so hard and so on? And sometimes it's, it's a quite intentional hardness. It's a quite intentional difficulty that's trying to match the form of the language to the actual difficulty of the subject matter itself, saying this subject matter is too hard to make simple. And I feel like what what Hughes allows us to talk about in this poem, which is in many ways very accessible, we can all read it, we know what it's saying, we know what it means, and yet it's also trying to suggest that we're, we're stopping language itself in the face of this kind of trauma. And how do we even press forward with language? And that's what a lot of other poets are asking in the 20th century. And they're coming up with lots of different solutions. So even though this particular poem is accessible, we might want to think about it as a difficult poem. And with that in mind, maybe we should turn to the poem itself. And ask, what do we notice about this poem? What do we see happening in these lines? Which, again, in some versions, it's six lines. In some versions, it's nine lines. Hughes kept representing it in different forms. Um, but what do we notice about the, the poem itself? That's right. Regardless of how he shaped his stanzas or his line breaks or whatever he did, um, there feel it feels like he's still attentive to poetics. And one of the biggest ways he's attentive is with a pattern of repetition. So you have that first sentence, in the Johannesburg mines, there are 240,000 natives working. And then you have a middle sentence, what kind of poem would you make out of that? And then here's the repetition, but with a little difference. 240,000 natives working in the Johannesburg mines. So what do you what do you think of that repetition? So that kind of structure is often called chiastic from the, the Greek for basically what, what, what looks like the letter X. And it's the shape of an A, B, B, A. And so the A would be in the Johannesburg mines and the B would be there are 240,000 natives working. And then at the end, you get the B first, 240,000 natives working, and then the A last in the Johannesburg mines. That's why we call it chiastic A, B, B, A. But what it does is it draws attention to the middle. And here there's this inserted question 
in between that A, B, B, A, right at the heart of the poem, what kind of poem would you make out of that? And so it draws attention to this startling question. Here's a poem asking, how do you even make a poem from this? The other thing I notice happening here is that in that sort of digging to the middle of this, you get a sense of the subject matter of of digging in minds themselves. You dig in minds in order to come out with something that you make something from, make rings from, make jewelry from, whatever. You you pull diamonds from the mind to make something from them. Well, poets dig into subject matter and dig into topics to make something out of what they find there. But what happens when the digging and the subject matter are themselves too horrible to even face? What can you really make out of that then? And so in, in some ways, the structure of this poem, which is not a poem, is actually mirroring the structure of digging and then stopping short of trying to make something out of what is found there. Yeah, it reminds me of that line from King Lear. You know, the worst is not so long as we can say this is the worst. Meaning if, if you're beyond speech, or in this case, beyond writing, that is the worst, you know? So it, it, there's a way in which by not delving in beyond the complexity that the poem currently offers, there's a way in which Langston Hughes is suggesting this is the worst because I can't even find the words for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it reminds me, so there there are some podcasts we've done for this episode, and I'm sure we'll do more, where poets face this incredible, difficult challenge, which is how do they convey silence with words? <laughs> how do you get somebody to pause and just sit in the silence of a difficulty um, when it's when it's speaking and words and writing that has to get them there? And yeah. so you'll see this is one reason why lots of poets use lots of white space. They'll use breaks here and there. They'll break up lines themselves across a page. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to convey the the stopping short of language with language itself. And and here's an early example of that from Langston Hughes saying, here's a subject, there's nothing to do with it. I can't make a poem out of it. There's your poem. <laughs> and yet we're talking about one of the greatest of all poets. Of course right. he Right. If if anyone is capable of the virtuosity required to handle something difficult, it's him. And yet even he, who's among the greatest, is saying no. I'm putting the pen down. You know, it's it's quite powerful. With all that in mind, Abram, would you be willing to read the poem one more time? Absolutely. Johannesburg Mines by Langston Hughes. In the Johannesburg Mines, there are 240,000 natives working. What kind of poem would you make out of that? 240,000 natives working in the Johannesburg Mines. You can learn more about Langston Hughes, see the text of this poem, and learn more about social poetics on the Poetry for All website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. <laughs>